No my hi my picky my kaki my hello and welcome to the 2020 writers program at the New Zealand Festival of the Arts. Um, shortly after one in the morning on April 26, 1986, the number four reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Ukraine, which was of course then part of the Soviet Union, exploded, spewing radiation across Europe. In uh, Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy, Suhi Plocky explores the lead-up to the disaster. He chronicles uh, the event itself um, in often painful, excruciating detail and its impact on both people and politics. Winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction, which I think used to be the Samuel Johnson Prize. Yes. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a gripping read. It's, it's a meticulous history um, that is remarkable not just for the quality of its scholarship but also for the quality of its storytelling. Um, there's a great deal of detail here, but I think crucially throughout what he does is he uh, puts at the centre of it human beings. It's ultimately a story about human beings, and it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here today, Suhi. Thanks for joining us. Um, Suhi, in, in, in April 1986, you weren't quite a detached observer insofar as you were actually reasonably close to your, yourself, physically, to Chernobyl. Can, can, you, can you tell us a bit about that, and can you tell us how it came to your attention in the, in the, in the first place? Yeah. Uh, well, you started saying that the accident happened on April 26, and I have no recollections of April 26. I lived at that time four to 500 kilometers to the south from, uh, from Chernobyl. Uh, what made that place maybe more dangerous than others was that it was on the bank of the Dnieper River, and the water contaminated water was coming down downstream from, from Chernobyl all the way to the Black Sea. Uh, but uh, we learned about people like, like myself, we learned about the accident not on the 26th, not on the 27th, not on the 28th, and uh, eventually some information was announced on the, uh, April 29th. And most of what we heard was coming from uh, Voice of America or BBC or mm. uh, Foreign Service BBC. So the government was really very tight when it comes to the information about the accident itself. And then, of course, the impact, the impact that it had on the territory, on the population, on people as a whole. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the news about Chernobyl, were, we were getting them in in stages, so mm. to say, and that that certainly created created a major distrust of the government. Uh, as I describe in my book, that was also beginning in many ways of the fall of the Soviet Union. Again, it didn't exactly disintegrate because of Chernobyl, but Chernobyl was a major factor that undermined whatever trust the society still had in the government. And I want to come back and talk about that a, a, a bit more in a, in a moment. Um, I want to skip ahead, though, to a trip you took to Ukraine, by this point living, I, I think, in the States, um, maybe four or five years ago, something like that, where you, you joined a, a trip as a tourist to Pripyat and the, 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 the mm -hmm. site of Chernobyl. And can, can you talk a bit about that and how that, that, that trip um, influenced you in terms of wanting to write this book or, and tell this story? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, um, I, was, I was always interested in, in the story of Chernobyl, partially because that was part of my own story, 
a story of my classmates, uh, a story of my students, uh, uh, because some of the students were actually drafted into the army around mm -hmm. that time and sent to Chernobyl as, as bio-robots, so where, where the technology didn't work, people were sent there. And uh, given what I just described, that we didn't really have much of information of what happened there, I was always interested in that. But for a while, it was maybe my, too close in terms of, in terms of days and years that, that passed, so still it was, it was too painful. Mm. And uh, also another thing was that the, we historians, we, uh, I interviewed a number of people, but mostly we worked with with archives, mostly we work with documents, and those were not available. And I was thinking about when, when one day I should do that. And that, that trip to, to Chernobyl, where I was part of the group, there were eight of us all together, really convinced me that I had to do that. Uh, I, I was doubtful in a sense that, yes, it was Chernobyl was part of my life, but on the other hand, there were all these people who were there at that time, like my classmates or students, who had much more intimate and closer relationship. But what, what would I have to offer to, to, uh, to the reader? And then on that trip, I, I realized that I was, there was a young, young uh, guide, very, very, good, very good tour guide. But she was born after Chernobyl. So certain realities that were there, she just couldn't, couldn't understand that somehow it wasn't in the books, and, and I thought, okay, probably the, the, the right book wasn't written yet, so let me, let me try to do that. So that's, that, that's how it came. So I, I just realized that I'm ready to do that and that I have some, some background and some inside knowledge that maybe others don't. How, at, least, at least the feeling of what, how it was, how, how we felt about that, how really upset we were and that we were let down in terms of that information that was hidden from us. Uh, so the, the, there was that emotional thing that, that also was contributed to, to me starting to work on that book. What were the people, other people on that tour there for? They had quite a range of different yeah. motivations. Yes, yes, yes. That was amazing. I, I, I actually, I never, I never thought that uh, uh, people would go uh, to Chernobyl for, for that particular kind of reasons. Again, there was a group of eight of us. There were four people from from UK, and uh, uh, it seems to me three students from Hong Kong, and they were doing a tour of, of Russia and Eastern Europe. But but the, the most the most amazing thing was with the British part of the group. So there were three young guys and 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 young women, and uh, I said to them, "But what brings them there?" And they said, "Well, don't you know the." two fantastic computer games about Chernobyl, so we are playing them all the time. So, and then they decided, to, the, 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 uh, Amanda, who was the, the name of, of, of that young woman, asked uh, uh, her husband, Stuart, what he wanted to do for either his birthday or vacation. He said, let's, let's go to Chernobyl. <laughs> and then they, they brought us to this, uh, the... Um, sport complex where there was a, a, a water pool. Of course, there was no water there. And they said, they, they showed such a familiarity with the place. I didn't understand where it was coming from. Apparently, that pool was part of that computer game. So they, 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 they knew every, every inch of, of that place. 
And uh, again, uh, it's, it, 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 was, it was quite, quite a revelation for me. I, when I was working on the book, and that's, that's how I started the book eventually, I emailed um, uh, one of the guys, Stuart, and said, could you please give me the names of, of the game? <laughs> I, I, want to, I want to see what it was, and he gave that. And then uh, when the book was out and I was in the UK um, uh, doing, doing uh, book presentation and signing, uh, Stuart emailed me and asked to sign the book, and he wasn't in London, he was somewhere else, so I, 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 I left for him, it seems to me, in Waterstones, uh, a book. So it, it was a, an interesting story. So the, there, was, there was the beginning, and then there was a continuation in terms of exchange of our emails. And today in Chernobyl, around Pripyat, we have tourist groups and organized travel, like I was a number of times part of that, but there is also illegal trespassing, mm. stalkers, people who just go there for the thrill of being in, the, in this nuclear dangerous environment and, and, and uh, uh, camp there and, and try to avoid local police and so on and so forth. And they call themselves stalkers. But the, the, the stalker, the, 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 the novel was there long, long before, right, before right. Chernobyl actually right. happened, which, which makes, wow, it's, it's, it's really amazing how some people can and really see things in the future. And that, so that, that, that was one of those cases. You talk in the book about um, the way that um, Chernobyl has come to take the form more of a myth more and more over time than in people's. Yes. So is the book, is, is the, kind of, the kind of driving mission of the book to demythologize that idea? Is that part of it, to kind of just go through and document the reality of what happened? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Demythologization is, is uh, an important part of what I was, uh, I'm doing there. Again, it, it is in the book, but I, I somehow never thought that through, mm. that that was my... So I wasn't... It looks like I was on that mission without really fully, fully realizing it. Uh, but uh, the, for, for, uh, for us, the, the story, let's say, of Chernobyl or, or wind-scale fire in, in, in UK or Three Mile Island mm. or Fukushima, uh, the, the context in which the, the, those disasters happened are important for us not just for the sake of the storytelling or for the sake kind of archaeological dig to, to figure out what, what it was there, but also to, to understand and to learn, mm. right? And, and uh, you can't, uh, in order to prevent such events in the future, and you can't learn much in that sense from mythology, right? So, so, so you, you, have to, you, you have to go deeper. You have to, to reconstruct the, the environment, the story, the political, the cultural, the, the, the understanding of, uh, the, uh, there is a lot about culture, at least I, I wanted to write about culture, including safety culture or, or the lack of safety culture. And this is also very, very particular for a place. It's very particular for time. It's very particular for an um, um, era in which that happened, which was also Cold War, right? Uh, I, I have that episode and eventually probably we'll, we'll talk about that as well, but Mikhail Gorbachev, a major larger-than-life figure in, in the history, of course, of the end of the Cold War. So he goes, he goes and speaks to the nation about Chernobyl, and you look at that, what? Three weeks after that happened? He goes and, and starts talking about that? 
For more than two years, he never visited the place, which is uh, unbelievable, but that was part of the so Soviet culture. Mm -hmm. he, he behaved the way how he was trained. He, 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 he learned how the, the leader behaves. And then I mentioned Cold War when he was talking about Chernobyl, two-thirds of his speech. Uh, it's May 1986, are, are uh, uh, about attacks on the West, right? So in, in mere five years, three, four years, the Cold War would be over. Uh, the Soviet Union would be gone. But in May of 1986, that's how Gorbachev behaves, which tells you a lot of how, how society changed dramatically, and Chernobyl was very much part of that. There's a line, I think, I think by his former translator about that speech. I think, I think it's specifically about that speech, which is something like... The, that speech opened up a rift between the people yes. and the government that never quite closed. Is that, yes. was that, is that your reading of it? Is that, was, did that speech go down badly or come to go down badly with it, it, the people it, of the Soviet it, uh, Union? Uh, 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 absolutely. I, I, I remember that very well. And uh, on the one hand, there was... Again, the, the Soviet Union is, is, is a country that went through Stalinism and Great Terror and other things. So from that point of view, there was not never much of trust between people and the government to mm. start with. But then something happens. After a after, um, long period of this the Kremlin deaths, three, three leaders um, died in three years. Then Gorbachev, young and articulate, comes to the scene, and there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of belief that actually he'll change the society. So there was that element of trust. And then Chernobyl happens. And he goes there and, first of all, conceals information and uh, then, then does these this things, really turns that into a weapon, uh, a ideological weapon in the Cold War. And I remember a, a colleague of mine in Kiev was saying, OK, no, he, he is finished. No one will trust him anymore. And when I was working on that book, I went, I went and worked in the former KGB archives in Kiev. Now they're open. And uh, uh, I, I found more or less the same kind of formulations that were there, that the people who were monitored by the, by the KGB were thinking along the same lines. So what I heard, and I still remember, right. in May of 1986 in Kiev, now it's also... Uh, recorded in the KGB archives, which means that it wasn't just a sentiment of one individual person. There was a much, much broader, uh, more spread kind of a sentiment that was in the society. Again, very interesting. On the one hand, it all started with very little trust between government and the people. Mm. But then Gorbachev brings this trust. When he, when he comes to power. When, when he comes to power. Yeah. And, and, then, and then Chernobyl. So I... I Th that, that was also the reason why, why you, I put that quote from Gorbachev's interpreter yeah. into the book. Because yeah. one thing is, when you are the author, you really have a lot of freedom. You can put one quote into the book and, and <laughs> not put another one. So you, you, you pick and choose. So I like that one. Because again, I, I, in, the, in my own experience, in the archival work that I did, that, that sounded for me true. Um, in terms of the way that the disaster played out, and we'll come to talk about it a bit more in, in detail in a moment, but it, it, outside the Soviet Union, it first came to the attention of the world, oddly enough, in, in Sweden, of all places. 
can you talk about that? It's quite, a, it's quite an interesting scene that you paint uh, mm. in, 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 a, in, a, in a power plant in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, the the uh, story is that it, it was on August, on, uh, sorry, on, on April twenty uh, ninth, uh, uh, that uh, they they picked up the the high level of radiation levels rising at the nuclear power plant in near Uppsala, in in Sweden. And uh, their first concern was, uh, okay, something was wrong with their nuclear power plant. So they, they, they checked everything, they, 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 they shut down the operations, everything was clean. They, they checked other nuclear power plants in, in Sweden. Again, everything was, was, was fine. And uh, then they started to pay attention to the direction of the wind. And the wind was coming from the other side of the Baltic and they realized that something terribly wrong happened in the Soviet Union. So they, they, uh, the, the Minister of the Foreign Affairs of Sweden, uh, other agencies try to get in touch with their uh, Soviet counterparts and the Soviet counterparts say, no, everything is fine, everything okay, we, uh, nothing, uh, nothing happened and only later that day there is a first very terse kind of announcement on, on TV that an accident happened at Chernobyl, but without any details. So really, really, it was uh, the, the attempt to, to conceal information from the very beginning. And uh, they, they did that before. They did that before a major, major uh, nuclear accident happened uh, at the um, facility that produced plutonium for, for nuclear bombs, and the facility was in the, uh, in the Ural Mountains. And because that was so deep in the Soviet Union, they were able actually to hide that accident. But Chernobyl was in European part of the, of the Soviet Union, pretty close to the borders. The, the direction of the wind was, was going toward, toward northern Europe. So uh, again, uh, it's, uh, they, they didn't get away with Chernobyl, but back in 1957 there was a secret nuclear accident which is now among the six largest nuclear accidents in the world. If you, well, maybe five if you don't count the, the uh, Castel Bravo and, and Atoll Bikini. Uh, uh, five or six largest accidents and one of them was hidden and people didn't know about it until 1980s. And there was another one in 1975, I think, as well. Did well, people uh, know about those? Was that something that people knew about in right, Ukraine? Right. Well, the, the, the one that you mentioned in 1975 was a relatively minor accident at the nuclear power plant near St. Petersburg. And unfortunately, accidents happen all the time. It's, and, and all over the world, of, uh, with, with Relatively, re relatively limited release of radiation, and that was one of those. But what was important about that accident near St. Petersburg in 1975 was that one of the underlying reasons why it happened were exactly the kind of the, 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 the reasons for which Chernobyl happened. But it was the situation of the Cold War. It was paranoia. It was obsession with secrecy. So that the culture of secrecy trumped the culture of safety. 
And uh, that information really was not shared even with the people within the industry itself. The, the um, uh, St. Petersburg nuclear power plant was also run by the, by the uh, really militarized arm of, 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 of the Soviet government, so that contributed to the secrecy as well. So uh, at the end of the day, that, that, uh, the, the, the atmosphere of secrecy was also one of the contributing factors to, to Chernobyl. Let's talk a bit then about what happened, and you said it has, has in common with 1975. On that night of uh, uh, April the 25th, I suppose it was, the, uh, or the day, I think, there was a test that was going to be a turbine test. And can you give us a kind of, for people who aren't super familiar with it, just a kind of Coles notes on, 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 on what then happened and the kind right, of... Right, sure, absolutely. Well, <laughs> the, the irony, the sad, side, uh, the sad irony of the situation was that the test that you just mentioned and that they were doing was supposed to improve the safety of the reactor. Uh, it turned out that when they were shutting down the reactor, uh, in, in general, again, there were dozens of reactors like the one that worked in Chernobyl. Uh, the um, um, reactor uh, is shut down, but it's still very hot, and, and you, need, you need water to be, to be continually supplied to it, even after it's not in the working condition anymore. And uh, the, the uh, electricity that was going to the pumps that were bringing that water was also generated by the, by the same reactor. And when they were shutting it down, the emergency uh, generators were kicking in. But there was a gap of, a, it seems to me, a second or a couple of seconds. And they thought that that was actually a dangerous situation. So they were trying to find out, when you sh once you shut down the reactor, the turbine still keeps rolling. And they wanted to find out how long it can roll. And maybe it can actually still produce electricity. To, to, to uh, deal with that gap. And uh, uh, that, that was the nature of the test. Uh, but the, the, the problem was that uh, to run that test, they shut down a number of emergency systems for the water supply and for other things, the, the thinking that the, the, uh, nothing can happen. One of the operators said, well, the probability of anything happened within that short period of time when we shut all the systems off was like an airplane falling on you. Mm. Uh, what they didn't know was that the reactor that they were running actually had a major, major problems. There were a number of, that, of those, but one of them was that the um, um, control rods that uh, made out of boron that go into the active zone of the reaction and shut down the, the reaction there. At their tips, there were pieces of graphite. And those uh, pieces of graphite, when they get in, what, the, the, what they do not the low the intensity of the reaction, but there is a spike in the reaction. And if the reactor is stable, it, it doesn't mean much. But that reactor wasn't stable. And there were a number of other issues with, with the uh, technology of the, of the um, reactor. One of them was that it was the so-called graphite reactor. Most of the reactors in the world are water-water reactors, so water doesn't burn. Graphite burns. 
The, the British first learned that in, in October of 1957, the so-called windscale fire, when graphite caught fire in one of the first British reactors. And uh, after that, they went, they, they, they shut down those reactors, they uh, adopted new technology. But that technology continued uh, going in the Soviet Union. So that's, that was another major problem. So uh, they, what, what, what happened, they were trying to do that test. They were shutting down the reactor, and uh, the, the reactor became unstable. Eventually, they lost control over it. The uh, um, biological shield that was on the top of the reactor, uh, the weight of it, it's mm, 200 tons at its mostly of concrete, was blown into the into the air. It got back on the reactors. So imagine, imagine your cattle or something like that where the, the cover goes up. It ended up there, but it didn't, it didn't close it completely. There was, there was a, 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 a gap there. And the graphite caught fire. Uh, and with, with, with that fire and with smoke was spreading the radiation. And it was spreading all over the Europe. Again, Sweden was, was part of that, UK was part of that. Uh, today we have, finally, we have a map of the fallout. And the interesting thing about the fallout is that within the, uh, that exclusion zone, the 30 kilometer zone, there are some very extremely, extremely dirty, as they say, so very contaminated parts and areas. That's where tourists normally don't go. But then there are also clean, clean areas, because it all depended on the precipitation of how the wind was going, how the, the rain was going. But there are quite dirty places in the Alps, for example. Mm. Austria, theoretically, is uh, after, after Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, Austria is probably the most affected country, the Alps. And, and there are these dirty spots all, all over the Europe in general which, which uh, raises a big question about nuclear industry as a whole in the sense that the decisions are made on the, on the national level, so there is a sovereign right of, mm. of a nation to have, to have uh, a nuclear power uh, uh, facilities, and, and the, 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 the um, profit from that or, or the benefit from, from using that power also goes into nation's coffers. But when something happens, that immediately becomes an international issue. It's, it's the, 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 the world as a whole that picks up the bill for what, for what happened. And uh, uh, again, Chernobyl is, is, is the, the primary example of that fact that the, the, our ideas and understanding of sovereignty, mm. which come really from the 16th and 17th century, are facing uh, challenges that 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 uh, uh, two or three generations before were completely unimaginable. I mean, there's quite a lot of discussion about nuclear arms and demilitarization and so on, but relatively relatively little about nuclear power now. And and and, and indeed, a lot of people who were very sceptical about nuclear power, um, environmentalists, some prominent ones have change their view about nuclear power because it seems a better option than, mm -hmm. uh, uh, than, than, than more environmentally damaging ones. 
Do you think we need to be talking more about those points that you just raised, the, the, the risks? Yes. Uh, uh, the nuclear power is, is a very risky, very risky way of, of uh, getting, uh, getting energy. Um, uh, and it's, it's also not as, as, a cheap, uh, as cheap as certainly it was promised in the 1950s. Uh, the, the, the promise was that the electricity would be too cheap to meter it. So it's, uh, um, it's, it's expensive to build it, so the, the, the investment uh, 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 at the beginning is, is quite substantial. Um, but then there is also the problem what to do with nuclear waste. And that problem is not resolved yet. So uh, there are major problems anywhere you go, political problems and otherwise. The, the attitude of people is, yeah, this is a great idea, but not in my backyard. Uh, and uh, uh, you, you really invest in, in, the, in uh, taking care of that nuclear waste years and decades after the nuclear power plant is already being shut down. This is in the circumstances when everything else goes well. Uh, you, you still need huge investment at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You need huge investment at the end of decommissioning that and decontamination. And then for foreseeable future, you still have to keep, to keep the, the uh, eye on the, on the nuclear waste. Uh, and again, Chernobyl is very interesting uh, in the sense that um, the, the state that built the reactor that got, again, benefit in terms of nuclear energy, uh, in terms of uh, electricity from it, doesn't exist anymore. Right? So it's, 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 it's a very interesting thing. The reactor, the, the nuclear problem, the state that built it is, is, is gone already. The responsibility of that state is not there anymore. There are three most affected states that are were formed on the ruins of the Soviet Union. So the most affected one is Belarus, then Ukraine and Russia. But for different reasons, none of these countries, particularly Ukraine and Belarus, are capable financially and otherwise to deal with the problem that was created by Chernobyl. So uh, the, uh, they just, uh, this, the last, last summer, they completed the construction of the new shelter it's a multi-billion project, paid, uh, again, Ukraine contributed, Russia contributed, Kazakhstan and others, but mostly paid by the money coming from G7. And if everything goes well, that new multi-billion structure will be good for 100 years, right? So for 100 years, whatever the state is there, there has to be some authority people, money, and others that would actually take care of that structure. And once it's gone, it doesn't mean that the problem is gone. The half-life of some of the isotopes released by Chernobyl, again, not, not in huge numbers, but the half-life is 24,000 years. Right? So that's, that's also another thing to, to consider when we uh, try to, to understand of whether the electricity produced by nuclear is uh, cheap or, 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 or expensive. Again, in some cases, it is extremely expensive. If you look at the uh, 
figure in, in dollars or, or yenas or whatever in terms of the lawsuits that were filed in Japan after the Fukushima, it actually goes in billions, which says that the, 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 the contemporary uh, law-based uh, society like, like we have in, in, in Japan is really not equipped, or at least legal system, is not equipped to deal with the disasters like, like Fukushima. So another, another big question. So uh, the, the, the argument that I'm making is not let, let's ban nuclear. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I'm trying to make a different argument. The argument that I want to make is that uh, we shouldn't invest into the nuclear as the, as the uh, really energy of the future. But we should invest today in the safety of nuclear reactors that are already there. And uh, uh, it's, it's the, the, the most probably troubling thing is that the um, new frontier for nuclear is not anymore the countries that already have some experience in dealing with, with accidents or with, with nuclear energy. It's not US, it's not even Russia, it's not, uh, uh, it's not UK. It's now Middle East, extremely volatile region. Uh, and uh, nuclear, another, another important thing about nuclear, that's, that's why the nuclear reactor in Iran gets so much attention, is that it's also a backdoor to acquiring nuclear weapons. So you really, the, 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 mm, the, 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 the political leaders in the world try to talk about these things as not related, that you can have one and, and, and not have another, and allegedly the idea was that if you have nuclear energy, then th there will be no urge mm. to, 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 get, mm. to get nuclear weapons. That was uh, President Eisenhower's idea, uh, atoms for peace. But in real life, it doesn't work that way. So that, that, that's another additional risk associated with nuclear. I mean, you mentioned the countries that now have, have uh, nuclear energy facilities. And there's also, you touch on it in the book a bit, the, the danger of uh, foul play terrorism even. And we saw that in Iran with the um, Stuxnet virus, which shows that, I mean, that was assumed to be an American operation to disable, but it's frightening to think what the potential is with something like this in a, in a kind of digital dystopian way, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes. And, uh, well, uh, the, 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 this, is, this is certainly all very true. It's, uh, on a certain level, it's like imagining nuclear bomb sitting right there, which, which certainly terrorists can activate, or, or the governments, right? And, and the, the governments were the biggest terrorists in the 20th century. So that's, that's, that's the, 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 the reality when you, when, when you look at, at, at the wars, at, at conflicts, and so on and so forth. And now there is, there is a new, new weapon that the governments in particular have. Uh, cyber warfare. And with cyber warfare, it's very easy to, to just cut off electricity from any, uh, any place in, in, in the, in the, on the territory of, of uh, a possible enemy. And cutting electricity off from the nuclear power plant, that means that actually the nuclear power plant explodes. 
Because this is the story of Fukushima. Why, why it happened in Fukushima? Because the supply of electricity to, the, to, to, to that area was stopped because of the earthquake and then tsunami. So what that meant was that the pumps were not working, were not bringing water there. And despite the fact that the reactors were shut down, they were actually too, that they still needed a long cooling period. So you cut off electricity from a place like that and you get Fukushima. And in, in, today's, in today's world, there are already uh, certainly uh, a couple of attempts uh, that they show that, um, that they can cut off electricity just by, by pressing the computer button somewhere in the other part of the world. That's, that's, that's the, 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 uh, another danger that wasn't with us probably five or ten years now. Now it is here. You don't have to drive a truck to get to the, to, to the nuclear power plant to create problems. One of the, um, one of the main, the thesis, I suppose, or one of the themes you explore is the extent to which Chernobyl and the events around it, you talked about Gorbachev, influenced the end of the Soviet Union, Ukraine becoming, becoming an independent state. I wanted to try sort of put a, to put, to, to put a counterfactual there are lots of ways that are also explored in the book that Chernobyl didn't happen. I mean, it required a bunch of different things to, sure. to go wrong mm -hmm. um, across mm -hmm. the board yeah. for it to happen. Let's, if it hadn't happened, do you think it would have changed the course of history? I mean, I'm not suggesting that the Soviet Union would still be going <laughs> or anything like that necessarily, but did it have a kind of material impact in a way that it would have changed those final yes. years, do you yes. think? Well, uh, mm, it's, 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 it's an interesting question, and I was thinking about that, making this argument, but also understanding of, of limits of, of that argument. Uh, and, and at the end, I, I came up with a formula that, um, yes, the Soviet Union certainly would, would fall apart one way or another. The, 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 uh, speaking about the Soviet Union, we forgot that that was basically the old Russian Empire. And 20th century is the, the century that very few empires, actually real empires, survived. Right? That's, that's, that's the age of decolonization and, and the age of sovereignty for the, for the states that, that uh, come out of the empire and imperial history. And again, from that point of view, New Zealand has, uh, has of course, a lot of its own history. Um, so, uh, again, there were general, general rules and, and economic inefficiency and so on and so forth. But it's, I, I would say that it would be quite, quite conceivable that the, the Soviet Union would continue for some time more, that the disintegration would take place in a different way uh, if Chernobyl would not happen. The way how the Soviet Union fall apart, it's difficult to explain fully without taking Chernobyl into account. Because Chernobyl became really the, the, the trigger for change of the government policy when it comes to managing media and, and freedom of speech in general. Chernobyl uh, created a situation in which the government was actually forced to start speak at least half truthfully to the people out there. Mm. Outrage was huge. And Chernobyl, and this is interesting about radiation, that it affects you whether you are a member of the Communist Party or not. 
whether you are uh, uh, an, uh, I don't know, academician or you, you, whatever job you're doing, mm. whether, whether you have right connections or not, whether you're a member of Politburo. So suddenly, the, the, whatever the, the ideological, social, and other differences and, and borders that existed within the society disappeared because of Chernobyl. Right? So the, 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 that, that was a big unifying thing in terms of the society. And the, the issues related to nuclear and environment became the first, the first legal issue that the government actually allowed its citizens to organize around. So the mass politics in the Soviet Union started with Chernobyl and started with nuclear. And um, uh, for those of you who maybe watched the HBO uh, series on Chernobyl, the, the, most of the shooting was, was, was done at the uh, nuclear power plant, with, which was uh, um, uh, basically a twin nuclear power plant to Chernobyl. It was uh, 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 located in uh, Lithuania, in Ignalina. And they, they, that's where they were doing that shooting. So, the mobilization in Lithuania, the first mass mobilization, happened around the Ignalina nuclear power plant after Chernobyl. Out of that was born the movement for independence of Lithuania. Mm. Why it is important? Because Lithuania was the first republic that declared its independence from the Soviet Union in March of 1990, so more than one year before the fall of the Soviet Union. And the mobilization, political mobilization, happened around Chernobyl in Ukraine as well. Why it is important? Because Ukraine was the, once Ukraine declared its independence in December 1st, 1991, the Soviet Union was dissolved within the next week. So the first and the last republics that declared independence. In both cases, the political mobilization started around nuclear, started around Chernobyl. You just can't, can't not, not to include that into the history of the fall of the Soviet Union, yeah. and not, not to think about that. But you're absolutely right, again, with, without Chernobyl, uh, the, the, the writing for the empires has been on the wall through the most of the 20th century. You mentioned the HBO series, which a lot of people will be familiar with. Um, it was critically acclaimed, I think it's fair to say. Um, what, did, what was it like for you, one of the um, <laughs> someone who'd written, literally written the book, on Chernobyl to watch that. I mean, what do you think? How do you think they? How did they do? What's your kind of? They uh, did very well. Um, they really mm, tried to be as as precise as they could with with every small detail. So the, the recreation of the Soviet of the late Soviet reality was really quite amazing. Uh, but that is not a documentary. So they cut a lot of corners, and they, 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 they missed a number of cultural things that were there. They, they had to create heroes and villains. Mm. Uh, one of the probably most disgusting characters in, in the miniseries is the director of the nuclear power plant, uh, Mr. Bruhanov. Uh, the, the guy who, uh, for those of you who maybe watched, there was an older party leader who gave that, that speech that we, we have to protect our people from, from information as opposed to radiation. 
And then the, the mini-series was still there, and I went to Ukraine, and I uh, was given a couple of talks and was together with some of the former operators from the nuclear power plant. And I thought, oh my gosh, how they will actually react to that. Mm. But the reaction was extremely, extremely positive. They, they knew that the, the creators of the film did certain things wrong, but they were so pleased that the world actually remembers about them, mm. remembers about their lives, about the, 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 the health that they lost, and so on and so forth. So overall, the, the, the reaction was positive. And uh, there is, there is a, um, in, in the miniseries, there, are, uh, there is an episode where there are uh, uh, three people who dive in, into the water and, and fix uh, a valve that, that was out there. So uh, the, the miniseries were released in May and first half of June, if I'm not mistaken. Before the end of the June, the president of Ukraine awarded those, two of them were still alive, it seems to me. Hmm. with the hero of Ukraine <laughs> uh, uh, medal. Uh, and uh, so again, the, the, the reaction, the reaction was, was positive in the place where I thought that there would be a lot of criticism, but hmm. it didn't happen that way. And overall, my, my, my assessment of the, of the miniseries that they got a lot of small truths wrong, but they got the big truth right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let's, let's um, people I'm sure will have questions. We have microphones in the middle aisle here, I think. And I will just say, on that point, those of you who have seen the TV series um, and not read the book, you recognise many of the characters in the book, and, and I think, to Sahih's credit, they are the ones that are kind of a, a, a villains, a, a have, have, a, have a mixture of heroism <laughs> and villainy and, and, and the other way around. And so, so they're more so or less real kind of people, interesting right, to, yeah. see, to see the... Um, who's who's going to come and grab it? Here's, here's a gentleman here who's on his way. What's happened to the frequency of radiation-induced cancer, such as thyroid cancer, following Chernobyl in places like uh, the Ukraine? There is a lot, a lot of debate and disagreement on what is the impact of Chernobyl on health, or for that matter, any nuclear disaster. And the reason for that is that we, as, as, as a society, don't know enough about the impact of the low dosages of radiation on human beings, on environment in general. And we don't know that because the, the plans after Chernobyl to have a major study of those impacts, like the one that was commissioned after Hiroshima and Nagasaki actually never happened. And when you, when you would Google the number of, of uh, uh, additional deaths that came out of Chernobyl, you can get estimates anywhere from 4,000 to 90,000. Greenpeace, it seems to me, gives 90 or more than 90,000. And the, the uh, UN, uh, UN agencies, somewhere around four to 5,000. So this is quite, quite a difference, which means actually we really don't know what we are talking about. There is one exception, and this is thyroid cancer among children. That's where everyone agrees. That's, that's what and the number of thyroid cancer, the, the spike additional thyroid cancer, because they occur naturally as well, is around 4,000. 
the, the good thing is that among other cancers, it's relatively easy, identifiable, and you can actually operate on people. So that, that doesn't mean death sentence. Uh, but that's 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 the the kind of data in terms of the impact on the on the uh, health the, the thyroid uh, among children that that we have we have some clarity. Other than that, it's it's uh, we, we we still we still don't know. My understanding of Chernobyl today is a place where the wildlife and everything is flourishing. That. There's been something there that's really beautiful that's happened. Uh, what, what is happening with the wildlife? It's not only back, but some of the of the animals that were never there before actually got into the into the into the zone. Some of them, I understand, a particular type of bear migrated all the way from Central Europe. I never knew that there were just forests that you can actually do that and that you can cross the, the borders of European Union without proper visa and, 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 <laughs> and, 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 and all, all, all sorts of uh, uh, precautions. But uh, apparently this is happening. And the argument that is being made is, okay, th there is nothing so terribly bad about radiation. The, 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 the life is, is, is flourishing, wildlife. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a very um, sobering thing for us to think that, okay, uh, the radiation is there, but the animals are there because we are not there anymore. That we, as, as human beings, we actually much, create a much bigger danger than, than radiation. Um, the, the, the argument about how, how healthy the life is there is, is uh, mm, again, that, that's one of the things that is being debated. The, the people who are doing research there walk into the, into, the, the, into the forest and realize something is wrong. They don't understand what is wrong. Then they realize, okay, there is no um, spider web there. So there are no spiders. And there are no spiders because they somehow de, mm, are related on, on, the, on the surface of the, of the ground there. And that surface is irradiated. Mm -hmm. And there are no cherry trees because there are no birds that allow those mm, uh, uh, trees to, to, to um, grow. And the birds are not there because they're not, there is something else is absent, and so on and so forth. Life is there of a very particular nature that some species are there, other species are not there. And then it also depends on a particular area in the zone. So again, I would be very cautious to say that the wildlife in particular is, is just flourishing there, despite the fact that there are some reasons to think that. We're, we're just about out of time. We've, I want to squeeze in this very last question, sure. a quick question and a short answer, and, and then we won't be breaking curfew too badly. <laughs> Is there a positive side to radiation in the transformation of us as human beings? I, I want to think that there is something positive that can come out of that, but it depends on us, right? What we make out of what happened. Do we learn those lessons or not? 
And uh, again, I, I want to think that 